Welcome to the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello and welcome to the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Marquis, and I am super excited about today's show. We have a guest speaker today, Dr. Stephen Thompson from Eastern Maine Medical Center. And um, welcome to our show, Dr. Thompson. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, Dr. Thompson and I, we've known each other for, what, about two or three years now? Well, I think maybe yeah. even longer, Paul. It's probably <laughs> gone by faster, but I think it's probably on the order of four or five. Yeah, I'll always remember the day we met. Uh, we kind of uh, quizzed each other and uh, asked each other a bunch of questions just, yeah. just so we could uh, see what uh, we had uh, as far as knowledge goes. And uh, I think ever since then, things have been working out really well with uh, with uh, our patients and how we've been working together. And uh, we've seen a lot of people, uh, complicated cases together, and that's Absolutely. worked out really well. Um, so Dr. Thompson uh, is the... Uh, he specializes in sports medicine, arthroscopic surgery, also the lead physician at Eastern Maine Medical Center, orthopedic surgical specialist. And um, he also uh, works with the University of Maine at Orno as an associate professor and a deputy editor of the uh, Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. So um, super busy guy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I've seen your name on a couple of books. Can you tell me about uh, those books? Oh, sure. So uh, I'm the um, co-editor-in-chief of the review textbook in orthopedic called Miller's uh, Review of Orthopedics. It's probably the most widely used uh, orthopedic uh, review textbook in the world. Um, it's now in its uh, eighth edition, and we are working very hard to try to get that to, in the next edition out as quickly as we can. I'm also the co-editor-in-chief of uh, Dele and Drez Orthopedic Sports Medicine, which is kind of the reference textbook that we use in orthopedic sports medicine. And indeed, we're just finalizing that. I just put the finaling, uh, final touches on that. So that'll hopefully be coming out in the next eight months or so. Awesome. That's awesome. That's great. And uh, I have seen your books. They're really comprehensive and uh, really well put together. And so uh, kudos to you. Thank you. Um, so today we're going to be talking about shoulder instability. I'm in the middle of uh, doing a long segment on shoulders. We talked about impingement, rotator cuff tears, yeah. adhesive capsulitis, how to manage it and treat them. Um, and I haven't really done much on instability. So I thought today we would talk a little bit about instability and I have a bunch of questions for you. Sure. Um, so I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you from a certain surgeon's perspective, uh, what classifies a, a shoulder instability? Sure. So there's a couple of different uh, classification schemes. I think the most classic classification scheme that has been used and is most widely taught is uh, the classification scheme that uh, was originated out at the University of Washington by Fred Matson, And that's the tubs uh, against the Ambry uh, uh, spectrum. And it's important to use that as a phrase spectrum because it's not just as you've seen Paul numerous times you can have some folks who are on the tubs side of it and some folks who are on the ambry side of it and so uh what the, those are two acronyms tubs is uh what we talk about as a traumatic dislocation uh where it stands for traumatic unilateral you're it's associated with what's called a bankart lesion and it's generally treated with surgery Whereas you then can get all sorts of instability where the whole shoulder feels loose. There's never been an accident, a dislocation, and that's AMBRI. So atraumatic, multidirectional, bilateral uh, 
They used to say there's six R's in Ambry, so six months of rehabilitation is necessary at minimum. And then if they ever did come to surgery, the I is for inferior capsular shift. That's an old surgical procedure that's done, uh, uh, was done open, but now we do it arthroscopically. But that kind of gives you the broad spectrum of what shoulder instability really is. And I do find it quite useful because I think that you can glean from the patient fairly quickly what their problem is. Many patients will come to you and say, yes, my shoulder is unstable. It feels loose. It's, it's giving way. It's the question of how is it giving way? Where is it giving way? And how, you know, kind of what's happening? And so I really try very quickly when I'm taking my history and doing my physical examination to determine, are we more towards the traumatic unilateral, the tubs side of things, or are we towards the multi-directional instability type patient? Right. Okay, great. And that led into uh, one of the other questions that I had. You know, we see these people who have uh, these multi-directional instabilities, and it seems like they're born with this hyper-laxity hyper syndrome. And it yeah. was weird. One one year, we had about five people who all lived in the same town up here in northern Maine who had this problem. Um, so, so your recommendation on those folks is rehab them, get the surrounding muscular structure as dynamically strong as possible? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you kind of have to sort of figure out your way about, you know, coming to the diagnosis. Uh, and I know we're going to get to talking about that. But the the fundamental thing really here is to understand what the pathology is behind it all, Paul. And if you understand that traumatic instability, for lack of a better phrase, traumatic instability, which is about 85 to 90% out the front, so anterior instability, about 10% out the back, posterior instability. Very rare to have superior and straight inferior instability. Um, if you think about what they have as an issue and what they have as a problem, then it allows you to rehab it differently than the way you would for someone with multi-directional instability. And we'll probably refer to that as MDI, uh, just to... to, to you know, cut down on phrases. And so the patient with MDI has, as you said, capsular laxity. They're born with a loose joint, whereas the traumatic dislocator has a tear of the labrum, the gasket to the shoulder that aids in providing shoulder stability. And so you could theoretically rehab, 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 a traumatic anterior instability person, but because they have that labral tear, that bank heart lesion, they may never get back to it. Whereas someone with capsular laxity is someone that you're working on periscapular muscular uh, re-education, you're working on deltoid retraining, you're working on uh, 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 shoulder kinematics and, and shoulder proprioception. And if you can work on those things, those kids do really quite well without any surgery. Right. Okay. So um, in the clinic, now you've seen somebody come in and they haven't had any diagnostic testing done. They haven't had any imaging done. What are your favorite tests, your favorite special tests of the shoulder that you like to use when evaluating the patient in your office who you are suspicious has a shoulder instability? Sure. So uh, a couple of different things that I will do, of course, you know, the physical examination, the way that, that I was taught to do it is the old British 
uh, style of uh, Apley, which is look, feel, move, very simple. So you first look at the patient and really even just looking at them, sometimes you can really tell the difference. And you've seen this in your own practice, Paul. It is, and I'm not trying to stereotype, but you know, sometimes you stereotypes can be useful in your practice. So if I have a 250 pound, very muscular wrestler that's standing in front of me when I'm looking at him, the chances of that being a multi-directional instability patient are much less than a 95 pound, uh, 17-year-old slender swimmer, for example. So just looking at the overall gir shoulder girdle, seeing what the, the strength is, uh, what the physique appears to be, that is a useful start. Then I will uh, feel around. There's not a lot of feel uh, in shoulder instability for me. And then you get on to move. Um, of course, you take them through a range of motion. And when you take them through the range of motion, it's very important uh, to accurately determine uh, the degree of external rotation of the arm. And it's uh, uh, something that I was taught that I don't know as well described everywhere, but was then named um, uh, after a guy in France called Gagey, is I call this pure passive abduction. So what I will do is I will take my hand and put it on their shoulder and really try to isolate so that we don't get any of that scapulohumeral motion. So we isolate down the scapula, hold it down with the clavicle as much as we can, and then bring up the arm. It should come to 90 degrees of abduction. If you get above 90 degrees of abduction, that's called a positive gagey hyperabduction test. And you can very clearly feel the difference uh, when a patient hits that 90 degrees versus someone that ends up doing this 110, 115, 120. Someone who can do that, that's a very significant sign for capsular laxity. Additionally, I find that shoulder external rotation past 90 degrees, that's also another uh, important one uh, to uh, look at to make sure because if they go past uh, 90 degrees, that's a significant concern. Again, you have to be careful to isolate that out. Then in my physical exam, I'm really looking for the classic uh, tests of uh, anterior apprehension, relocation, and surprise tests. I do perform a posterior apprehension test. I do perform a um, jerk uh, test, which is essentially to test the posterior labrum. Uh, I will perform an O'Brien's test. And, you know, it's important to know that because the labrum is a, a circumferential uh, structure, that you may get, you know, false positives. You, you know, you and I talked about this case the other week, that anterior instability should not really necessarily, by the strictest sense of the definition, give you a positive O'Brien's test. But because it's stressing that labral complex, it may. And you have to take your physical examination um, uh, with a little bit of a grain of salt. But that's kind of the, the, the general things that I like to do. And specifically, what's really important for me, Paul, is uh, when you're evaluating that patient, specifically when they're getting into, you lay them back, you're doing an anterior apprehension test. So they're bringing their arm out and they're bringing it into external rotation is really you want to pay attention. When are they feeling loose? You have to talk to your patient and say, talk to me, tell me what you're feeling. Um, because a patient who gets instability at this is much different than a patient who gets an instability at like this. And now I'm starting to get concerned, not only about Frank, 
a traumatic instability, but I'm getting concerned for frank instability with bone loss. So for the podcasting purposes, um, can you explain that last part again in degrees as far as your abduction oh, me, and yeah, external sorry, rotation? Yeah, yeah that's no, no problem. Absolutely. So, you know, if you're getting to 90 degrees of abduction and 90 degrees of external rotation, which frankly, some patients are able to do, they're able to get to 90 degrees of abduction, 90 degrees of external rotation. And that's just about when they feel that degree of apprehension and irritability. But then there's some patients who are only at 30 degrees of abduction and 30 degrees of external rotation. And those are ones that I'm really starting to get nervous about um, and and someone that I would want to probably pursue a little bit more. Right. Excellent. So thank you very much for that explanation. I really appreciate that. Um, in the past, you know, I, I've been a therapist for over 25 years and, uh, you know, even 10 years ago, when people came in with dislocations, it seems like the, the magic number was, you know, surgery after three dislocations. Yeah. Now, um, you and I have had some conversation about this, and we know that people generally, if they're younger than 18 years old uh, and they dislocate once, they're at a significantly higher rate of dislocating yeah. again. Give me some statistics on that, and sure. then uh, let's talk about um, – well, let's lead into diagnostic testing. Should we should we do imaging on everybody who has a traumatic uh, dislocation? Yeah. So um, absolutely, I, I talk to my patients fairly significantly uh, for a long time about this and what I feel are fairly impressive numbers. And a lot of this stuff comes out of some of the long term studies that came out of Scandinavia back in the eighties and nineties and early two thousands. And essentially, you're exactly right, Paul. If you dislocate your shoulder and you are 18 to 20 years old or younger, and that's when your first traumatic shoulder dislocation is, you have about an 80 to 90% chance of re-dislocating your shoulder. And it does reduce over a period of time, but it does not go to zero. So, you know, in someone who's 40 or 50 years old, you still have about a 40 to 30% chance of dislocating your shoulder. And that's where you get into this conversation about treatment. But to answer your first question, though, should, should all people who have dislocations um, get some sort of imaging? And the answer for me is overwhelmingly yes, especially in the older population. We know that the older population has a high rate of associated injury with dislocation. They have a high rate of greater tuberosity fractures. They have a high rate of neurologic injury and they have a high rate of rotator cuff tears. So you want to make sure that if you have someone who's quote unquote older, and I would probably define that as anybody over uh, 40 to 50, absolutely. You know, everyone should get a shoulder x-ray, but really if you're going to press me, that older person should without question get it to rule out an injury to the greater tuberosity. If you have a patient who's in that same category, dislocates their shoulder, they get an x-ray, they're doing okay, you start rehabbing them, you're getting them through those initial two to three weeks, but you start falling down and you're noticing the strength isn't improving, you're improving their passive range of motion, but that strength just isn't coming back, isn't coming back, then yes, I would certainly advocate for a non-contrast enhanced MRI to rule out a rotator cuff tear. Um, if we're now talking about a younger patient, then again, I do think it is reasonable even after a single dislocation to get x-rays because you want to make sure that there isn't a bony bank cart lesion, if there's, which is a tear 
of the labrum from the socket with an associated fragment of bone. So that's why it's called a bony um, uh, bank heart, and that comes off the glenoid. If that's happened, then they have theoretically a worse uh, prognosis, and you may want to consider surgery sooner rather than later. So all these things, I think, are are long-winded answers for me to say yes. 100% of the patients in my estimation demand x-rays. Um, I think that, you know, from my perspective, I do like to prognosticate. I do like to look at glenoid bone loss if they've dislocated multiple times. Uh, and that's with the CT scan. And then for the younger patients, an MR arthrogram where they inject contrast dye into the joint to rule out a labral tear. Right, right. Excellent. So um, I, I want to throw this little piece out here because we talked about ages a little bit and um, and when they dislocate. So from experience, now I don't know what the evidence shows on this, but from experience, I've seen that the younger people who have dislocations require immobilization a lot longer and that they're really not easy to re-dislocate. But I, what I found is those people who are 40, 45, 50, 55 years old who dislocate and they're immobilized, if they are mobilized too long, seem to jump right into like a frozen shoulder type of situation. And so it's one of those things I want to mention to our listeners, because if we leave those immobilized too long, then you're fighting a, a, a real tight capsular issue as long as everything else looks good uh, from, uh, you know, diagnostic imaging and stuff like that. So is it that the tissue is just responding differently at an older age or at a younger age? Is that why they're, they're stiffening up like that? I, you know, I think maybe, I think there's certainly a, you know, there are these folks who get post-traumatic um, frozen shoulder and we don't know why they get it. Maybe they have, you know, diabetes or they have a thyroid condition or other autoimmune condition. And I agree with you, Paul. I am a big fan of the most brief possible period of immobilization as is necessary to restore comfort to the patient. And so when I go in and I see a patient uh, who's dislocated their shoulder, if it's their right hand and their arm is in the sling and swath a lot of the times, I will make a point to try to shake their hand and they'll get all nervous on me and I'll say, no, 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 I want to shake your hand. And then usually towards the end of the thing, I talk to them about the importance of getting out of the sling and stuff like that. And I say, I purposely want to shake your hand because I want to prove to you and to me that I want you out of that sling it's okay. It's highly unlikely that you are going to re-dislocate just coming out and, and shaking someone's hand. Use it. Get it moving again as quickly as possible. And, you know, we do know too that, and this kind of takes us in a slightly um, uh, different direction with this, but if you can restore an athlete's range of motion very soon after a traumatic dislocating event, then they'll get back to sports much faster. If they, you know, are immobilized for 7, 10, 12, 14 days, if they're, if they can't get back in the first week, they're probably not getting back for the season. And so I think for right. the listeners who are athletic trainers or who are involved with treating young uh, adolescent athletes, the more brief an immobilization you can provide these patients, the better. I totally agree with you. And I think that if I was to, to say something from experience, it's that as a therapist or, or anybody who is rehabbing somebody after any shoulder injury, you need to know and understand your anatomy 
and kinesiology and understand, you know, what stresses are, are caused to the shoulder, what direction they're unstable in, so you can avoid overstressing those tissues, but still building dynamic strength to the shoulder early on. And so I'm a big advocate of early isometrics in the plane of the scapula. Um, you know, people who have anterior dislocations uh, don't have any problem with uh, forward flexion of the arm. So we try to regain forward flexion, but we just avoid that pitcher's position. Um, but I'm a big advocate of, uh, you know, many people say we well, got to strengthen the, strengthen the internal rotators a lot. I think that the external rotators are just as strong a glenohumeral compressor as anything else. And so we really try to hit all those muscle groups and then re-engage the uh, scapula. And uh, I love doing like gentle weight bearing activities just to get good co-contraction and redevelop proprioception in the shoulder. So, um, but you need to know your anatomy so that you don't overstress, over tear or, or re-tear, you know, tissue. Absolutely. Um, for, for the general provider who uh, might come into uh, an office and, and you have this patient who comes in, are there any big red flags when you look at that patient and say, this isn't right. We've got to go directly to orthopedics. We need to go to the emergency room with this. Are there red flags that we need to be concerned with? Yeah. So the major concern um, is the patient who's holding their arm at the side after a fall and cannot externally rotate. So if they're, if they come in and they're holding their elbow uh, with one hand and it just, you know, you cannot get them to externally rotate zero, zero, zero degrees. Uh, that's something that's a huge concern. That's a concern for a posterior dislocation that, you know, needs to be identified immediately. We know in the literature that there still remains a significant proportion of uh, posterior dislocations that go missed, and that can lead to catastrophic complications necessitating, you know, shoulder arthroplasty and, you know, in the young patient. So that's obviously something that's a big red flag. I think lesser red flags um, are, but are important for evalu prompt evaluation and, uh, you know, even prompt referral are neurologic dysfunction. There's a significant proportion of patients. I vividly remember one guy who was in his mid fifties who dislocated his shoulder, first time shoulder dislocation. And he came in and he had, he looked to me, I would have you know, bet the farm that he had a massive rotator cuff tear. I got because he had complete uh, pseudo paralysis, which means he could not lift his arm whatsoever, but possibly I could take his arm easily through a full range of motion when I evaluated him. I sent him for an urgent MRI, fully expecting a massive cuff. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to make sure that we, what we were dealing with. Um, and so it, his rotator cuff was totally fine. And it turned out to be a huge brachial plexus uh, injury. And it took him over two years of very diligent therapy to get that going. And that's someone that really needs to get into rehab uh, immediately. I think some of the other things, too, is um, severe ecchymosis. So if you see a whole bunch of bruising over the arm, that could be associated with a fracture. And that's something if they have, you know, as we talked about, that's associated with glenohumeral instability and traumatic dislocations. If they have a greater tuberosity fracture, then that's someone that you're not going to want to do a lot of uh, active abduction. You're not going to want to do uh, early um, uh, strengthening type exercises. That's someone that you're going to want to treat a little bit more conservatively. Right, right. 
Awesome. Uh, yeah, I think uh, when it comes to the ecchymosis part, uh, I just did a talk on biceps ruptures, and oh, yeah. uh, I, I've got some really nice videos. And you see these people with with uh, uh, bruising there, and they're typically oh, yeah. biceps ruptures or fractures. Rotator cuffs don't generally bruise or, nope. or uh, cause a lot of swelling. And that's the other thing. When I see a shoulder that's really swollen, I really become concerned with that because they just don't present themselves like a swollen elbow or a swollen knee uh, or an ankle, you know, so they do present a little differently that way. So, yeah. um, so I'm going to put you on the spot here, Dr. Sure. Thompson. Um, this is a question I'd like to ask different providers because I did a podcast regarding how to connect with specialists better. Sure. So my question to you is, and, and, and I don't want to have you inundated with phone calls, obviously, sure. after this, but, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach people how to connect with a specialist better. And why is it that you take my phone call when I call you right away rather than, somebody who you may not know, or, um, you know, we know you're busy. We know you have, uh, you know, a lot of, you're in surgery, you're taking care of a lot of patients, you've got a lot of things on your plate, obviously, like we talked about when you first came in. But I'm sure that you want to make sure that your time is being used appropriately. And what is it from a provider that you like to see or hear that uh, makes it worth taking their phone call? Sure. I think the key thing in our relationship, Paul, is that I have trust. I have trust in in your evaluation. I have trust in what you're telling me. And I understand when you're saying something that it is going to be accurate. And so I think being able to build that up with a provider takes time, but is a hugely valuable uh, resource. And so um, with with taking, I mean, certainly I'll take anybody's call, but you know, you and I talk very frequently about these things. And I think for your listeners, if they're looking to build relationships, they want to make sure that from a physician, from an orthopedic surgeon standpoint, that an appropriate evaluation has been done, that a proper differential diagnosis has been considered, that pertinent positives and negatives are discussed at the time of case presentation. And frankly, the case presentation follows a logical order in the same way that, you know, any case presentation, it should begin with a chief complaint, a history, followed by, you know, any pertinent negatives in that history, followed by physical examination with pertinent negatives in that physical examination, and then their treatment to date. Um, And, you know, sometimes it's really a statement or a question right at the beginning. I have a question about this patient's treatment or I don't know what to do with this patient because and it, you know if you can give that to them in a very succinct fashion in a very organized fashion then that shows that you know what you're doing that shows that you have polish and, and composure and that you can complete an evaluation of a patient and that I think is a huge benefit um, I don't ant- anticipate the physical therapist. I don't anticipate the athletic trainer to be making the diagnosis 100% of the time, but I do uh, hope for them to get in the ballpark of what the diagnosis is and to be talking logically about what treatment that they've been providing so that, you know, we can work together to get the patient treated and, and back to whatever it is that they want to do. Yeah, I thanks. I, I really appreciate that. The um, I, I think it comes down to you know collaborating and making sure that uh, we we know that we're sending something to you that is going to be fruitful 
and not waste your time and and really help the patient, you know, because it comes down to the, the number one thing is we're here to take care of patients. Um, but we want to make sure that we do it in the right way and uh, really appreciate you taking the time today to uh, help me out with this uh, podcast no and to be a guest. This has been absolutely awesome. And uh, maybe we get together and do some more in the future. Sure. Uh, I think that uh, this has been, uh, been great. And so uh, for all of those of you who are listening, again, thank you so much for taking the time to um, get on. If you have any questions um, for myself or Dr. Thompson, uh, go ahead and connect with me at orthoevalpal.com. Get on the uh, Get in Touch page. Send me some questions. I'd be more than happy to do that. Uh, don't forget to connect with us on our uh, closed Facebook group, Valpal, and uh, just have to uh, ask to be admitted, and I'll uh, let you in after you ask uh, answer a few questions. And um, we will uh, continue to give you as much education as possible regarding the evaluation of orthopedics. And uh, hopefully we'll be uh, jumping into some cervical spine issues soon and uh, having some fun with that. So again, thank you all for listening. And uh, again, Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for your thank time. You. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there. 